0: Alper and the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestooli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this very substantive Monday edition of Fangraphs Audio, as he is on most Mondays, is Fangraphs Managing Editor Dave Cameron. And in what follows, Cameron and I discuss a number of topics that will blow all of the respective minds of our listeners, including, but not limited to, Alcides Escobar and Drelton Simmons, and the idea of defensive aging curves... Some news from the past couple days, including the decision by the Oakland A's to start U.N.S. Espedes in center field to start the season, Bryce Harper's demotion to AAA Syracuse, and the Yankees' recent re-signing of former Yankees left-hander Eddie Pettit. And finally, uh, somewhere in the middle, uh, we discuss the Sabre Analytics Conference, which took place in Phoenix, Arizona this past week at which conference Cameron himself participated in two different panels and at which he also delivered a talk on scrappy pitchers as potential market inefficiency and how they got that way. It's managing editor Dave Cameron. It's Fangraphs Audio, and it begins right now. Yeah, smart. Yeah, smart move. You told uh, this writer uh, to write about Alcides Escobar. I did on, on Friday, and I did that. Yeah.
1: How how did that go for you?
0: I think it went okay. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I guess how much is there to say? You know, the Royals are probably getting, you know, a deal. Alcides Escobar is, you know, now a multimillionaire, so that's good for him. Right. Uh I think, I mean, his upside is limited as a player because his offense is limited. I mean, the chances of him even hitting, you know, five runs in a season are, or five home runs in a season are, are pretty slim at this point, it seems.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think to me the interesting thing about this point is, you know, the a little bit of a rush to lock up guys who don't have much offensive value because offense is usually what you get paid for in arbitration, so... I don't know. If teams are assuming that that's going to change, and arbitration is going to start rewarding players for defensive value, or if the Royals just couldn't get their good hitters to sign long-term contracts, they gave it to the fielders instead. I mean, I, I would think if I'm the Royals, I'm trying to extend Eric Hosmer and uh, you know maybe Mike Moustakas. Although I'm not completely sold on him, but uh, more than Salvador Perez and Elvis Escobar.
0: Right, and and. Uh, the biggest question remains at this point probably is for Alex Gordon, too.
1: Right, yeah. With Gordon, I mean, that's a little bit of a different circumstance because he's only two years away from free agency, so he's got a lot more leverage to say no. So, uh, you know, you can't always lock up a guy who's knocking on free agency's door just because you want to.
0: Now, Gordon was, uh, off the top of my head, but I think he was something like a four- or five-win player last year. Is that right? A uh,
1: seven-win player, actually.
0: No, really.
1: Yeah, he had a monster year. Part of that was... uh uh, he led the majors in throwing out base runners from the outfield, so uh, as a third-base conversion guy, my theory is that teams didn't have good scouting reports on him, so they kept challenging his arm, and that turned out to be a really bad idea. So he got almost a, uh, let me say more than a win in value just through throwing out base runners. Um, so his defensive numbers are probably a bit inflated, and his scouting reports get around the league. They'll probably run on him a little less, and his, his defensive value will go down. Um, and then uh, I think... Uh, he was five and a half wins offensively, so it was like six point seven, six point eight, something like
0: that. Yeah. So, but the thing is, with him, um, as soon as he was drafted, um, he was well. He was he was probably um, overcelebrated at that point because uh, you know there's only so much that um, players generally do in their first years as a major leaguer, uh, and he was probably um, mishandled a, a little bit by the Royals. But a player with his pedigree, who puts up a season like he put up last year, uh, I mean, do you do you see him as a you know at least a five win player in you know in twenty twelve and then you know for the uh, for the near future?
1: No, I think that's a little high. So I think if you look at Gordon's breakout season, uh, he yeah. added some power certainly, which is uh, you know probably something sustainable. Well, there's a little bit of regression uh, potential possible with the power, but. You know, power gains can be sticky and can carry over from year to year. Um, but his lock rate and strikeout rates weren't drastically different. Uh, the jump in offensive production really came from 120-point swinging in his So he went from, like, 250 in uh, 2010 to 370 in 2011, uh, and that's just not real. I mean, a, a huge part of that is going to be given back to if he settles in, you know, between 300 and 320, uh, which is still above average. Um, but not the crazy high number he posted last year. That's gonna cost him a couple of wins. Easy. Uh, then you toss in the, the regression and defensive metrics from players not taking extra bases on him willy-nilly and having him gun them down. Uh, I think Gordon's probably more of a three or four win player. He's, he's a good enough defensive outfielder, but he's not, uh, a superstar with a glove. He's not Carl Crawford or something. Um and he's not the kind of hitter who's gonna you know, put up a, a monster offensive season and lead the league in any kind of offensive category. So I think Alex is a good, not great player, uh, you know, borderline all-star, three- or four-win guy. You
0: know, uh, you, you mentioned uh, that he's not like Carl Crawford in left field. Uh, another player um, that that reminds me of, whose numbers always surprise me, uh, but surprised me today because Appleman uh, announced on the site that our um, the fielding Bible runs, the fielding runs saved, is that right?
1: The, the defensive run saved. Defensive
0: yeah. run saved, right, courtesy of John DeWan and, and uh, the Fielding Bible. Uh, uh, he posted those have been updated, and uh, one of the links that he that he posted was to Brett Gardner's uh, stats. And I think Gardner, b- by both UZR and uh, defensive run saved, um, has been worth 25 runs each defensively the last two seasons.
1: Yeah, he's really good.
0: <laughs> he's the second-best Yankee after Robinson Cano over the last two seasons. And, you know, obviously we have to be careful with defensive metrics, but when you see two different systems saying that he's been worth 25 runs above average in left field each of the last two seasons, at least it lends some credibility to the notion that, you know, true talent-wise at least he's probably – I mean, he's what, 15, you think? It, it, a base I, I
1: would say probably more like 10 to 15. I mean, you know, certainly BRS and UVR are different systems, but they are also based on the same data source. So they're using the same inputs and they have different formulas and different ways of valuing things, but uh, they're both based on the baseball Info solutions data. So they're not uh, wholesale different. It's not like they're measuring, you know, entirely different uh, periods of data and coming up to the same. Uh, conclusion that way, but I do think you know when you look at Gardner, obviously he's really fast. He played center field in the minors. He should play center field. He's got the tools of center fielder. You move him to left, and you start comparing him to you know big plotting, slugging outfielders. He's going to rate out really well. Um, so it shouldn't be any surprise that he, he's well above average. Uh, plus twenty five. Very few people can sustain anything at that close to close to that level. Uh, we've seen Franklin Gutierrez do it a couple of times. Adam Everett did it a couple of times. But uh, by and large, I don't I don't think that that's a true talent level that's generally sustainable. I think Gardner's probably 10 to 15 runs better than an average defensive left-fielder, but that's still really fantastic.
0: You know, to, to bring this back, um, we were uh, having some conversations briefly about um, Escobar's defensive capabilities. Um, that's Alcides Escobar. Uh, his defensive capabilities and whether um, – you know, in the, and combined with his offense, I guess, you know, is the upside, uh, Ozzy Smith or, uh, you know, uh, or Omar Vizquel or, or is the, is the more likely outcome, uh, Adam Everett? And, you know, and that, that was, uh, Matt Clausen talking. And of course, he's, uh, uh, perpetually pessimistic about his royals.
1: Right. Uh, you know, I think anytime you're comparing anyone to Hall of Famer, you probably just take the under. <laughs> So I think I think with any player in general, you'd say, yeah, does this guy compare well to this guy who ended up in Cooperstown? She'd probably best off to this. say no. Uh, I think Adam Everett's probably a, a more reasonable comparison. Um, you know, and there's certainly a, a chance that Escobar could turn into something more than Everett did. But Everett was a an amazing defensive shortstop with you know mediocre to significantly below average hitting abilities. And uh, once the injuries came and took away some of his terms, value, he was out of baseball, and that could certainly happen with Escobar as well.
0: What on that note, what is your opinion of um Andrelton Simmons, the uh the shortstop prospect who uh, I guess because Tyler Pasternicky is his only real competition um for the starting shortstop job in Atlanta at this point, you know, has been considered a potentially viable alternative to Pasternicky. Andreton's uh or Simmons defense is supposed to be crazy and his contact rates um, at least in low minors, have been very good. Then again, he has no experience above A ball.
1: Right. I mean, you know, uh, I've talked to a few scouts who said uh, that he's the most similar thing to Elvis Andrus that you could possibly dream up, especially considering both came up through the Brave system. And, uh, you know, I think that their skill sets are very similar. Andrus had more hype, was probably a little bit better offensively, um, and maybe even a little bit better defensively. I mean, Simmons uh, is supposed to be very good defensively, but Andrus is, you know, one of the more acrobatic guys we've seen uh he doesn't always take the routine play as often as he should but he can he's got ridiculous range so um and i do think that, you know if you look at andrus that's a um an example of a guy who could be useful very early even with minimal major minor league experience because the skill set is something that peaks early so the defensive value um doesn't really get better <laughs> over time you generally lose range as you get bigger and older and injuries take their effects i mean you do get some offset from experience and learning how to turn to double play and um but for the most part, defensive value declines. And so, Simmons is probably close to as good defensively now as he will ever be. Or, you know, maybe with a small chance to improve over the next couple years. But he's pretty close to his peak. And, uh, like you mentioned, high contact rate. This isn't a skill that, uh, generally needs, you know, some adjusting with the majors. Like usually guys who make contact in the minors make contact in the majors. Um he's not gonna hit for power or draw any blocks. But, you know, if you avoid striking out and play really good defense choice shortstop, uh, he could be a useful major leader this year, and so um, if Taylor Pasternicki doesn't show something early on in the season, and Simmons is doing his usual good defense and not springing out, thing in the minors, uh, I wouldn't be shocked if the Braves made a flop.
0: You know, it, um, it, it's curious what you mentioned there with regard to the uh, to defensive value and how it ages. Uh, it, that sounds a lot more like how uh, we've discovered pitchers age, in that they you know they have their highest velocities, you know. Pr- probably like you know right around college age essentially you know and and yeah. usually when we see them get to the majors it's only going to be a decline from there and generally speaking with it uh performance as you mentioned you know there are things that you can learn along the way probably that's even more the case for pitchers but it sounds less like the aging curve for hitters
1: yeah absolutely i think that we, what we see in baseball is things that are very related to your physical abilities uh, peak very early, like early to mid-20s. So speed, uh, which is also tied very heavily to defense, especially in the outfield, um, you know, uh, velocity. A lot of these things where it's like you either can do this or you can't do this, your physical peak is is early 20s. Things that are much more uh, repetition-based where you have to improve. So, you know, being able to recognize a breaking ball or hitting same-handed pitching or, um, you know, learning how to mix your pitches like these things that come from experience peak much later so overall peak age tends to be around 27 uh it's a mix of those skills though some of these skills peak are at 23 24 and some of these peak skills peak at 31 or 32 and so um you know the the physical aspects of things um including speed and range and you know throwing arm those things tend to peak earlier and i think you know we can see this in areas of your life too like if you were going to you know, move a lot of heavy furniture. Would you rather hire a twenty-one-year-old or a thirty-one-year-old? So probably going to go with a twenty-one-year-old. It's just generally accepted in life that they have more energy and more stamina, and they're stronger, and um, it, it carries over to baseball players as well.
0: Yeah. What? Now what? At what age do you think the blogging peaks? Blogging ability.
1: Well, uh, I think Leacher Report probably thinks thirteen or so. <laughs> <laughs> I.
0: What? What does that mean? They have a lot well, of you. it was
1: just a, you know it was just a, a to make a joke. Uh, I, I
0: say that <laughs> but, no, but 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 wait, not. wait to, to to contradict you, it's it's interesting. I mean, I know that we generally make a practice of not commenting too much on, on other publications, but from a hiring point of view, Bleacher Report has been interesting of late because they've hired people who uh, are generally well regarded in the writing community.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sitting here trying to mock Bleacher Report. I was just going for cheap laughs. I yeah. think entertain the listener. But, uh, you know, I mean, Bleacher Report is certainly changing their model somewhat and going after some, uh, uh, credible writers. And, uh, it'll be interesting to see if they make those credible writers do slideshows. I'm, I'm curious to see if that, that, uh, goes along with it. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, no, nothing against Bleacher Report. Uh, maybe not my favorite site on the internet, but, you know, they've got a business model and they're doing pretty well for themselves, so.
0: All right, so beyond that, let's go uh, – when, when, when do you when do you think blogging really does peak? <laughs>
1: uh, well, I, I would say there's not a lot of physical exertion uh, in blogging, so it's probably something more like plate discipline that peaks very late. Uh, so I'm going to go with uh, – Marie Chase. blogging age is probably something along the lines of, like, 32. 32?
0: I think, like, you
1: probably, yeah, yeah, I think, like, maybe when you start to get into your 40s and you get children and you get other priorities, maybe you, you decide it's just not that interesting to you anymore. Um, and it seems like in your early 20s you're maybe a little too passionate and too zealous and you say things that you regret. So uh, I'm going to go with uh, 32 as peak blogging age, which is great for me because I'm 31, so that should mean I'm I'm right in the middle of my prime. And uh, also that this number was totally objectively selected.
0: Yeah, right. But question: What are you going to do then? Uh, as you're on the the downside, you're going to look for a career change, maybe to like uh, I don't know. Is there is there a senior blogging tour or something like that? No, I
1: think I'll probably just sign with the San Francisco Giants.
0: Yeah, well that's true. I, I mean, as long as Brian Sabian is there, I like your yeah. chances, Dave Cameron. Uh, I, I think I, I
1: think the uh, the Giants need more more elderly bloggers, and uh, they're certainly home to past their prime players.
0: Yeah, All right, now I do have uh, I have three um, news points that I want that I want to get to, uh, and they concern um, Cespedes uh Cispedes, uh Andy Pettit and Bryce Harper but I'm going to put those aside right now that, that's just to um tease uh tease the the uh the listener Um uh, but I I want to talk um briefly about what happened this weekend um in Phoenix uh yeah. you were at the Sabre Analytics conference I know that you definitely participated in a panel uh I know yeah. that you gave a presentation and I know that um uh, Eno Saris also participated on a panel, too. I, I'm curious as to um, your your particular experiences and what stood out to you from other panels.
1: Yeah, I was actually on two panels, and I did a research presentation. They worked me like a dog, uh, but it was fun. Uh, so Thursday, I was actually on the opening panel that started the conference. that was the Changing Face of Baseball Data. That was moderated by Sean Foreman and included John DeWaugh of Baseball Solutions, Corey Schwartz of MLB.com, and myself. Uh, that one was fun, but, uh, also kind of typical in that you would, you got what you expected, I think, going in. Uh, Corey Schwartz is limited to what he can say about certain topics because he works for MLB Advanced Media and they are the people who own pitch effects and field effects and, uh, you know, they basically contract with Sport Vision to provide them with this data and then they turn around and sell it to teams and so Corey's just not really at liberty to talk about it a lot. So, um, you know, he was, as forthcoming as he could be, but he also had to kind of, you know, dance around some answers. And then John Dewan is the producer of the Fielding Bible 3, which just came out, so he was very interested in telling you to purchase the Fielding Bible 3, which, you know, any good book salesman would do. Um, So that kind of was fun, but it was, uh, you know, I would say... Uh, anytime you have discussions about fielding metrics and proprietary stuff, there's only so much you can get out of people who can't really talk about. I mean, DeWan's not going to give away his formula for how they calculate plus minus, and Corey's not going to tell us, you know, that we're getting field effects next month. So, um, you know, I think that that's one of those panels that leaves you wanting more, uh, just by the the nature of the conversation. Um, but I was also on the Clubhouse Financial Panel, which I thought was a lot of fun. It was uh, Vince Gennaro, Rob Neier, Jay Jaffe, and myself just kicking around baseball topics and things in the sport, talking about the new CBA and, um, you know, undervalued players in baseball. Um, and, you know, I think that one was uh, that was probably the, the highlight of the conference for me. Um, I was on it, so I'm biased, but I really enjoyed that one. And then I did a research presentation Saturday morning on uh, scrap heat starting pitchers. And, uh, you know, it was more well-received than I thought it would be. Um, and I enjoyed doing that one
0: as well. You mentioned, I I mean, you've certainly done a couple pieces uh, on that, uh, on the site. Uh, We've talked about it here. I I was wondering who, besides like a a Jeff Francis, um, whose name has been invoked on this podcast, you you might have discussed in uh, in your actual presentation.
1: Yeah, so basically what I did is I went back and pointed out, uh, I wrote a post on the site back in December about uh, guys who signed one-year contracts last winter, and how well they did. Brandon McCarthy, Bartolo Cologne, um, pretty Garcia. There was a long list of pitchers who got one year deals last winter for not a whole lot of money. And then turned out to pitch really well. So I wanted to see if that had been a recent trend. Um, and also it seemed that the price of those guys had gone down significantly from prior years. Um, you know, like, uh, we, we saw Garcia and Cologne and some of these guys settle for low millions of dollars, even though they had, you know, pretty decent history and track record or track record of history and success. And, um, so I thought that these types of pitchers were getting more money in previous years. So I went back and looked at starting in the 2006 offseason, guys were coming off DL stints, uh, starting pitchers, um, but signed major league deals and uh, how much money they got and what they produced and kind of looked at uh, whether this was a recurring market inefficiency where teams just uh, um, were getting more value from these types of pitchers than they should or if the decline in prices in recent years was in response to um, failure on um the part of the pitchers who've been getting money and that's I found more of the latter. Like uh up starting in two thousand six, really through two thousand nine, major league teams spent a lot of money on guys who had bad arms. So Ben Sheep got ten million one year after not pitching, Rich Harden got seven and a half million. Uh Mark Mulder got a fourteen million dollar contract for two years coming off the worst season in baseball. Um, you know, Woody Williams got a bunch of money. Casey Rogers, there's a, there's a lot of guys who got real money. Randy Wolf one year got $8 million coming off a disastrous season. Um, so teams were throwing significant contracts at these guys who were in purple shoes, and it almost never panned out. The results were terrible, almost across the board. Um, and so I think what we've seen, especially in response to the Sheets and Harden contracts of 2009, is the last two years. Teams have just stopped giving out those kind of deals to guys with arm problems and saying, "Hey, look, if you're healthy, you're going to prove it on the field, and then we'll give you money." Um, and uh, it's turned out to be a, a better idea for teams. There's a question of whether the correction has gone too far, and you know, maybe a guy like uh, Colson Bertol Colon shouldn't have had this for seven hundred thousand dollars this winter. But overall, I think teams have gotten smarter and are, are doing better by not giving you know seven to ten million dollar contracts to guys coming off serious arm issues.
0: Was that just based on the name of the pitcher at that point? You know, like a contract to Mulder, to Mulder like that, or a contract to Sheets?
1: Yeah, I mean, it seemed like teams were very interested in trying to land name-value guys who had previously been, you know, Cy Young-caliber pitchers, um, and thinking they could get, you know, uh, they were buying upside, basically. So they were saying, okay, you know, if an All-Star costs us $20 million, but we can get this guy for $7.5 and I mean, pitches like an All-Star, we've saved $12 million, but the reality of those guys hardly ever pitched like All-Stars and it was not a, uh, the the return on investment was very poor. I mean, in some years I found that the, of the group of pitchers who were uh, throwing, um, you know, coming off one year, coming off injuries and signing one year deals, the the cost of signing that group was somewhere between eight and nine million dollars a win and this is back when a win only cost generally about three million in free agency and so, um, the, the return on investment for those guys just wasn't there. It certainly was last year, and it might be again this year because prices seem to have stagnated and are, are still pretty low. With guys like Paul Maholm and, um, as you mentioned, Jeff Francis and uh, a lot of these guys signing fairly cheaply. Um, but overall, you know, in previous years, these these guys were not providing value for the money they were getting.
0: Now, so when you're giving this at the uh, the conference there in uh, in Phoenix, how does that work? You you deliver it and then. Uh, you're faced with, uh, you know, uh, myriad questions from a from a, a pack of of, uh, of nerds, basically, yeah.
1: Uh, sort of. So they uh, they double tracked all the research presentations. So mine was Saturday morning, and I went up against John Dewan and Ben Jendovic talking about the shift data that they have in the New Fielding Bible. Um, so you know that's a better presentation and certainly a more notable one than mine. So they got the bigger room, and uh, I got a small little side room. And I was honestly expecting, you know, 10 or 15 people. Uh, there was a couple, maybe a a couple hundred uh, attendees there Saturday, and I was expecting most of them would go to Duan's presentation. But by the time I started and was on slide two or three, there were probably 50 people in the room, including a fair number of uh, uh, baseball Front office folks. There were actually 19 of the 30 teams had representatives at the conference this weekend. So there was a, a good number of uh, team representatives, and they a few, a decent amount of them came to my presentation, which was pretty surprising to me. Including one major league trainer who came up to me at the end and told me he enjoyed the enjoyed the talk. So I guess I couldn't move on that badly.
0: Well, that's uh, that's very good news, Dave Cameron. You're helping. Yeah,
1: especially because I put the presentation together, at least the, the slides and PowerPoint. I built them about 3 o'clock in the morning, about 7 hours before I did the presentation. So
0: Yeah, the timetable um, seemed unfortunate. That seems like a lot of work to be doing in the uh, the AM part of the day.
1: Yeah, yeah. well, you know, I, I think I had planned on being able to get some of that work done in the few days between our FAMGRAF staff weekend, the prior weekend, and then when the conference started Thursday, I was thinking I would have some time in order to work on the presentation, and then that all just dissipated very quickly, and so I found myself on Friday needing to build the slides, and, uh, and you know I didn't get a start on it until midnight. So uh, overall, considering I did it on very, very little sleep and with not a ton of time to prepare, I think it went okay.
0: Yeah, well, that's good. And uh, uh, any, uh, I don't know if you saw Eno's, um, Eno's panel, but even if you did not, uh, I mean, did did he behave himself? Generally speaking, uh, I know that uh, it was difficult for him uh, over the past weekend um, when I was there uh, in Phoenix. Uh, he had some trouble keeping his pants on. I know.
1: Right. Yes, he uh, stayed fully clothed on the panel. Did not attempt to disrobe in public, which was good. And we would have probably fired him on the spot uh, had he done so. So, out of job preservation, he stayed fully clothed, and I did I did see his panel. Uh, he did a nice job uh, answering questions. I think the um, the one unfortunate part of that fantasy panel is Craig Glazer, Derek Cardy, um, and Enosaurus. the three people were on the panel, all met fans. So uh they basically had uh homogenous rooting interests in the fantasy panel. It obviously wasn't a discussion about real baseball, so the the teams they root for not a not a problem. But it did uh create some opportunity for jabs at the New York franchise that is not very good.
0: Yeah, no, yeah, that's true. And uh and well actually that uh uh, that reminds me, and p- perhaps I'm not allowed to uh, to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, bold, I'm going to uh, I'm emboldened. Uh, I believe that we're approaching the time of year when uh, FanGraphs, um, through you, releases its organizational rankings. Is that a case? Is that the
1: case? Yeah, yeah, those are coming out probably the end of the week. Uh, we'll start rolling them out from 30 to one. The goal is to finish them up by opening day, uh, at least the opening day where, you know, everyone plays, not just the two irrelevant teams from the AL West flying across the world to play in Japan next week. Um, So those will probably be coming out Thursday, maybe Friday, depending on how things shake out, but probably more likely Thursday. Um, And uh, I don't know if I would say that they're being rolled out through me. I mean, I'm helping to organize it, but they're certainly not just my rankings.
0: Yeah, right. And and I think that uh, we should make that clear from last year, too, is uh – um, because there was some question as to how, I think the Orioles finished like 16th last year. Yeah. Uh, and there was some question how that was possible. Um yes. And uh, now this is a team that, for example, is not allowed in Korea, uh, <laughs> in the entire country. Uh, things looking worse for them. Um, but uh, you've actually, you, you have uh, um, elicited the help of Phanagraph's um, writers, too, in, in ranking. Uh,
1: I, I did that last year as well. So mm-hmm. just to, to clarify, that I was not the person who put the Orioles' feet. That was Fangraphs as a whole, and we apologize as an entity for our stupidity. I have no idea how that happened. That's not going to happen again this year. I can tell you that.
0: I think it pop- uh, Well, I think it has something to do with the fact that they had a lot of ca- uh, they had a lot of interesting pitchers coming up through yeah, through the minors, like legitimately correct. interesting pitchers. Even though like Chris Tillman had a pitch, that well, they also had you know Zach Britton and Brian Mattis and or however you say his name. Yeah. And apparently Brian Mattis is throwing a 94 this spring or something like that.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, I think there were reasons to have some hope for the Boreal future talent levels, but their present talent wasn't good, and obviously their baseball operations staff was, you know, uh, compromised by their owner. And so, I mean, you know, their revenues aren't at the same level as some of their ALEs' competitors, um, and building around young pitching is probably the scariest thing you can do. So, um, you know, the Fangraph staff as a whole was definitely too optimistic about the Orioles young pitching staff and maybe the, you know, guys like Matt Wieners and Adam Jones and, uh, may have gotten carried away a little bit too much by looking at some of their, their young guys in the prospect ranking. But I think that, uh, hopefully our system this year, uh, is going to more equitably weight those things, uh, in comparison to present value and, uh, you know, revenue streams and financial resources and um, the quality of the baseball operations staff so that, uh, you know, just a good young group of promising prospects won't be enough to get you to the 16th best organization of baseball this year. All
0: right. Let's uh, let's talk about some um, relevant news points of the day. Yep. Uh, Courtesy uh, MLB.com's Jane Lee, uh, beat writer, uh, MLB.com beat writer for the A's. Uh, It appears as though... Um, start, uh, starting at center field for the A's on that fake opening day that uh, is going to be happening in Japan uh, will be uh, Cuban signee Yunies uh, uh, Um not Coco Crisp, who will presumably be moving to left field. Uh, thoughts on that, Dave Cameron?
1: Uh, you know, I think it makes sense. I mean, they're paying him uh, 36 million dollars for the next four years, at which point he'll become a free agent. Uh, so they have limited time to get value from suspendus, and uh, you might say, oh, well, I'll keep him in the minors and maybe he will produce better, but a large reason that, uh, a large part of the reason why you keep young players in the minor leagues, uh, if you're a rebuilding team is to hold down their service time level and make sure that you get maximum return on investment. And so, you know, should the A's pay, you want to so- so spend up a lot of money to sit in AAA and make Sacramento better, or should they let him take a lumps at the major league level? He's not ready and make adjustments at the major league level and, um, you know, get more value from him there. And, you know, I think w- when you're on a contract like Suspitas is, uh, the reason to send him to the minor leagues is only if you believe he's going to completely flop and can't really produce at an acceptable level and they might have to send him down later. And, um, you know, he's got this power and, you know, potentially defensive value that that's probably not going to be the case. And so, um, even if you think he's going to strike out a lot and, um, you know, have some flaws exposed in his game as rookie year, it's better to have those uh, flaws exploited at the major league level where he can begin to adjust to them and hopefully become a good player sooner than later rather than um, delaying that adjustment period after having him start in the minor leagues. Uh,
0: so just a logistical question with regard to Suspene's and the sort of contract he signed. Uh, as you mentioned, he signed a four-year contract. Now, Does he become a free agent when that's complete?
1: Yes, he does. So they uh, usually you get six years of club control, uh, would you find a player? The A's, uh, agreed to void the last two years of, of club control. So basically the contract of the status guy is a lot like what some of the veteran Japanese guys get when they come over. Uh, Deki Matsui, for instance, Nitro Suzuki, and some of these guys. Uh, actually, I think that Makichiro didn't, did not, because he went through the posting process, but, um a lot of these Japanese free agents will come over and sign contracts that will make them free agents at the expiration of the, of the deal and suspend us signing the same type of deal.
0: Okay, and, but that's different than like if you sign an international free agent out of the Dominican Republic.
1: Correct. I mean, the, the standard player player contract in Major League Baseball, uh, gives the team six years of control over you, uh, just like if you were, you know, a Major League rookie who came up. Um, so a team has to agree to alter that contract and waive their right to um, the final couple of years of, of team control if the, if that's what they want to do. And in this case, that's what they agreed to do.
0: And, and I I, uh, I forget which player it was exactly, but I, I think I was looking at a minor leaguer recently who had signed like uh, you know who had been drafted in fact and signed a three-year major league contract. But there was a year between like his third. It was a year. Uh, between the end of that contract and the beginning of his first arb year. So does he make league minimum again in, in that season? Uh,
1: so a lot of times, and this has been eliminated in the CBA, because you can't give major league contracts to draftees going forward, but previously uh, high draft picks would be able to negotiate major league contracts that would put them on the 40-man roster right away and then would also basically uh, predetermine their salaries in pre-arbitration years. Uh, so instead of making the league minimum, it would say, you know, here you're going to make one five or you're going to make two or, you know, whatever the salary was that was um, spread out in order to give you a smaller signing bonus. Um, and then if you didn't qualify for arbitration by the expiration of that deal, um, then uh, the team would still control your rights and you would have to negotiate a new contract with them. But there's also a rule in major league baseball. You can't cut a player's salary by more than 20%. So if you made $2 million in the prior year, they couldn't just knock you down to $400,000.
0: Oh, okay. Noted. Noted. That's very interesting. I sort of wondered about that. But you say it won't be a factor going forward except for the players who are sort of being grandfathered in.
1: Correct. And what the other interesting thing about these deals is, in most cases, players have opt-outs if they become arbitration-eligible while they're still under contract. So I think Rick Porcello just did this this last winter. He was under contract on a major league deal from when the Tigers drafted him. But he became arbitration eligible, so he opted out of the contract he had signed and went to arbitration instead. And, and so these contracts are basically set up as like baselines, where the player will get at least this, but they could get more if they perform well.
0: Okay. Okay. Noted. Very good. Um, I guess uh, as we're talking about uh, prospects uh, um, with uh, with high upside, uh, Bryce Harper, uh, who's you know by some you know by differing accounts either the first, second, or third uh, best. Prospect in baseball uh, was recently sent down to Triple uh, A camp uh, with the Nationals. Um, I don't know—is that—is that surprising to you? I, I, there was some talk, you know, over the, the early the, the winter here that Davey Johnson was, would give him every chance to to make the team, but obviously it's not necessarily in the financial interest of the Washington Nationals, uh, you know, to have him start the season unless they really think that he's head and shoulders above whoever else they put in right field.
1: Yeah, actually they're on center field, so they've decided uh, that Jason Worth's center fielder experiment is over, and he's moving back to right field full-time. Uh, so it's uh, Harper's going to play center field down in uh, AAA and probably play center field when he's called up. Um, and it sounds like they're going to go with uh, Ricky and Keel in center to the end of the season. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that this is obviously the right decision. Uh, this gives them an extra year of, of team control at the end, so even if you thought that Harper was slightly better than Ricky and Keel, he's not nearly better enough. <laughs> justify giving up a year of team control in the wage 25 season um so now the question really is uh do they call him up may 1st and uh allow him to become a super two uh, in a couple of years and get escalating contracts uh, value very quickly or do they hold him back until you know late june or early july and uh make him avoid super two and keep his salaries down so uh it'll be interesting to see i think right now the plan is probably to call him up may early may but uh if Harper doesn't light it up in AAA and if he's struggling a little bit, and, um, you know, there's certainly a financial incentive to keep him down even for a couple months beyond that.
0: Oh, interesting. So, so how do you feel about, or what do you think about, um, Bryce Harper, the center fielder?
1: Uh, I think he can do it for at least a couple of years. He's a super athletic guy. Uh, he runs pretty well. Um, I don't think it's a stretch to believe he can be an average defensive center fielder. Um, so I, I think, especially, you know, 19 to 22, 23. Um, seasons he can probably play a pretty credible center field. Eventually he'll grow out of it. I mean, this is the thing that we talked about earlier, is defensive value peaks early. So if Harper's ever going to be able to play center field, he's going to be able to play it now. Um, I think, you know, he might eventually profile a better in right field, but, uh, they've got Jason Worth there for a pretty long time, so there's some incentive for the, the Nationals to let Harper play center alongside Jason Worth, and then, he'll when that contract's coming to an end, Um they can slide, word, uh, uh, Harper back over to right field, um, and you know, I mean, there's talk that they would pursue a center fielder next winter. Michael Bourne, Shane Victorino, you know, they tried to trade for uh, Adam Jones. Um, they didn't link to Gerardo Parra, but if Harper can play center field and let them get a bat and left, uh, that might be a better plan anyway.
0: And that's interesting actually because it will take some pressure off his bat um, in terms of you know producing um, you know a certain you know value of war whatever that whatever that value above replacement is.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think with a player of Harper's athleticism, I mean, the natural comparison for me is always going to be Josh Hamilton. They're very similar players. They're similarly talented. Uh Both of them were, you know, absolute phenoms in high school. Um They're both bigger center fielders who, you know, maybe you'd look at, and say, I oh, profile a little bit more as a regular corner outfielder, but they have enough athleticism to play center. And as we've seen, you know, the Rangers have gotten more value out of Hamilton and center. Uh Injury issues have been an issue him there. But, you know, if you can say, okay, I can put Hamilton and left and, uh david mur or Hamilton and Center and David Murphy and left, then I'm better off than if I have Hamilton and left and you know someone like Julio Borbone and center who just can't hit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: uh yeah well that uh, that'll be interesting to watch, of course, everyone's very excited know uh, will he play will he start the season at triple A then?
1: yeah, they sent him down to Syracuse, so he'll start the season at triple A and uh he's probably spend at least a month there and uh depending on how he performs, maybe only a month there,
0: yeah, and might I suggest to Bryce Harper? Uh, while you're in Syracuse, go visit the Finger Lakes.
1: Um, yes, my wife, my wife is from upstate New York, and she loves the Finger Lakes.
0: Yeah, very beautiful. Uh, uh, take a long time to drive around, uh, given their you know their total area, but
1: uh, but a beautiful area. My, my my guess is Bryce Harper is going to be more interested in finding the women of the Finger Lakes than the lakes themselves.
0: Mm. Well, uh, I I wish him the best of luck in that endeavor too. Uh, I don't know. Well,
1: he's a, he's, a, he's a rich athlete. I don't think he needs luck
0: yeah that's true that's true. uh that's actually funny. I was looking uh briefly, I found my way to Mike Napoli's uh, Twitter account, and he appears to have conversations uh, only exclusively with uh, uh large bosom to women. That seems to be <laughs> the bulk the bulk of his of his Twitter usage.
1: Yeah well, you have a male baseball player
0: He's a, he is a man. he might actually yeah. be two men. Um, Mike Napoli. It's yeah. hard to say. Kind of like, uh, you know, like a, like a, like a Chinese dragon you might see during a New Year's celebration. It's a, yeah. mul- multiple people inside the dragon. I think there are maybe two people inside of Mike Napoli. Um.
1: That's certainly possible. He it, hits like two or three catchers combined.
0: He so. does, yeah. Maybe that's why he never buttons his top button. It's just to kind of let right. some air in or something. Yeah. That's uh,
1: a good, a good you should look into this.
0: Only, only. Uh, the sharpest analysis here on Fangraphs Audio. By the way, I'll add. Uh, finally, uh, Andy Pettit, everybody's favorite French pitcher. Um, what, uh, what's the deal with that? Does he just, uh, Dane Perry suggested today on KnockGraphs that he had grown tired of his mewling family and, and was more interested now in baseball and cash. Obviously, Dane Perry, uh, uh only one to ever see the worst in anyone else. Uh, yeah, I
1: think Dane might be projecting there, because yeah. like, Dane wants to get away from the family doesn't mean everyone wants to get away
0: from. Him. Right, but uh, one tweet from or uh, was a quote from Mark Feinstein of uh, uh, blogging, blogging the bombers uh, had had uh, Andy Pettit saying that he was embarrassed uh, to come back, uh, but his desires had changed.
1: Well, I don't know why you should be embarrassed. I mean, you know, like Vander uh, Holyfield attempted like seventy-four comebacks, and uh, this is a pretty common thing. I mean, I think you know a lot of talented players who walk away, you know, when they didn't necessarily have to uh, realize that you know maybe they still have something left. They didn't. They didn't go out with failure as their uh, motivating factor. And anybody was a good pitcher in two thousand ten. Uh, he certainly wasn't chased out of the game. And so I think, you know, it's not all that uncommon for these people who, you know, the last thing that they remember is they had the ability to get major league getters out or, you know, perform well at the level that they were used to, um, to think, you know, what if, can I still do it? Um, you know, I think these guys are u- uber competitive and they um, they want to know that they uh, didn't leave anything on the table that they could have. You know, continue to perform and, uh, so for most of them, they have to be told, hey, you're done. And they don't want to be the ones telling them that themselves. So, you know, in Pettit's case, I think, you know, uh, I, I believe his intentions were good and wanting to spend time with his family, but he's still a, a super competitive baseball player who can probably still get major league hitters out. And if he's hanging out at the field watching other guys, uh, do what he used to do and thinks, hey, I can do that, I, I understand why he would want to come back and give it a try.
0: Yeah, I mean, now, if you were a baseball player, say you were decent, you know, you'd know you had uh, um, similar success to Pettit, do you, do you think that you'd have to be driven away from the game? You'd have to have someone tell you that you weren't allowed back?
1: It's certainly possible. I mean, I, you know, I think uh maybe what we underestimate with these guys is that this is what they've devoted their entire lives to, starting usually at, like, age seven. <laughs> so this is, you know, the culmination of 30 years, uh in Pettit's case, like, 33 years of hard work, and this is the only thing he's ever done. And so when they stopped doing this, uh, you know, not to denigrate baseball players, but they don't really have any other skills. Like, they didn't, uh they generally didn't, pursue other hobbies like every waking moment they had as as youth were spent uh, improving their their skills on the baseball field and um this is what they've set their life towards and so you know uh what does someone who has done something like that do, do in their spare time when they're not playing baseball anymore um and i'm assuming it's pretty boring if you don't have some other uh hobby that you're super interested in or um, you know, even, even if you have children, they go to school and, like, you know, what do you do while they're in school all day? So, um, you know, I think in Tedd's case, it's uh, certainly understandable that he can say, hey, look, this is the thing that I'm good at. This is the only thing I've ever really done in my entire life. So I can still do it. Uh, I should do it while I can and, and not uh, prematurely bore myself while sitting around waiting for my kids to come home.
0: Yeah. Right. And with all the uh, kidnappers out there, who knows if they ever will come home?
1: Uh certainly certainly possible. I, I was actually kidnapped yesterday by one uh, uh minor league radio announcer who uh wanted to go to In and Out Burger and he he would not take an over an answer, so he threw me in his car and to In and Out we went.
0: Hmm. Minor League uh does this does this announcer does he call Triple A games? He does. Hmm. Are his initials M C? They are. Yeah, I know that guy. I know that
1: yeah, guy that guy. He, he
0: has a, he's got a little mouth on him, I think.
1: Uh, well, I mean, I think of a radio announcer, that's a required. It individual. is
0: it's true. If you don't have a mouth, there are some other things you don't need. <laughs> <laughs> but as a radio announcer, uh, uh, you need a mouth. That's a fact. And yes, vocal right. cords, uh, probably a larynx somewhere in there. Yep. Yep.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, I think those things are uh, prerequisites.
0: Yeah. 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 All right. Uh, well, very, very good. Uh, well, listen, Dave Cameron. Uh, it's good that you are uh, you're back uh, at home, and and uh, we'll probably spend. Longer uh, there than you have um, had the opportunity to recently. Um, I've been led to believe that you'll be doing some live blogging. um, I don't know. That's that. What is that? Early next week. Next
1: Next week. week, Yeah, Tuesday and Wednesday, the uh, Mariners and A's open in Japan at uh, 6 a.m. Eastern time, 3 a.m. Pacific time. So uh, anyone who wants to come hang out and watch those games with me at an ungodly hour. Uh, you can make some eggs or some
0: waffles or whatever it is, and uh, we can all watch baseball together next week. You know, uh, just on this side, Jackie Moore, you know, he did a knock today. He did the piece about how uh, Orioles uh, scouts are no longer allowed at uh, Korean games. He, yep. sent, he sent the e- email to me at 6.19 a.m.
1: That is super early.
0: Well, yeah, I'm thinking
1: I – He didn't go to bed.
0: Yeah, I'm going to guess he didn't go to bed because Jackie Moore – there's no, there's no time in this, there's no place in this world for Jack Moore waking up at 6:20 a.m.
1: Yeah, that's not possible. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah, that yeah. was, uh, that was
0: dark. It felt disgusting. I don't want emails from him at that time. If he's gonna put something up, he should just do it. I don't want to know that he was up at that time. Yeah, That hurt. Yeah. That hurt. Uh, All right, Dave Cameron. uh, Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you to the listening audience for listening with your ears. And uh, and, uh, for, for Dave Cameron, I'm Carson Sestouli. And this has been Fangraphs Audio.